0: Welcome to Catholic Light. Join me, Becca Doherty, each week as we shed a little light while keeping the conversation light. Hi, and welcome back to another episode of Catholic Light. Thanks for joining me. If you're listening in real time, or if you're not, you may have noticed that we skipped a week last week and um, are resuming just after the Easter active. So one of the the many things I love uh, about our Catholic faith is the place for fasting and the place for feasting and I love how the numbers work out for for Lent and Easter so we we fast for 40 days or we make sacrifices we we live penitentially for 40 days in preparation for Easter Sunday and then we feast like big time feast for eight days so um, my kids are small but we're just starting to teach them that, you know, Easter Monday, Easter Tuesday, Easter Wednesday, it's as though each of those days were Easter all over again. They're like, another hunt, more chocolate, yeah! We'll get to, you know, the the more profound dimensions of Easter as they grow. But um, it's just so beautiful, even, you know, for, for kids at a young age to start learning that um, the church... Um, you know, embraces penance and suffering and um, denying ourselves, but then we also really embrace uh, feasting and celebrating and, um, you know, the the vivacity of and beauty of life. So thank you, Jesus, for that. So I took a little break um, last week to enter into the Triduum and um, to... You know, be, be fully present to Easter Sunday and so here we are back for another week of Catholic light. Um, we went, as many of you, I'm sure did, uh, we went to there was Mass of the Lord's Supper on Holy Thursday and then there was a 3 p.m service on Good Friday and then we my husband sponsored someone and my dad sponsored someone um, through our CIA. so we all attended the vigil together on uh, you know the eve of, of Easter Sunday. And so on. On Good Friday, I mean, by the end of Thursday's Mass, my kids were like, "More church? <laughs> this is so long," and it was it was late for them. But on Good Friday, um, my in-laws live about ten minutes away, and they had over our, our niece and nephew, who are Christian um, but attend uh, another Protestant denomination church. And God bless them; they're they're Sophia and Declan's age, so seven and five and they, we, we strategically sat, you know, adult, child, adult, child, um, but God bless them. They hung tough, and I, I said to my niece and nephew afterwards, I said, Patrick, Momo, this was long for an adult. This was long for Aunt Becca. Um, I imagine it felt even longer for you, but you guys did great, and, you know, it was a church that, that they're not used to, um, so my kids, you know, experience the comfort of something they, they see many times throughout the week, but for, for Patrick and Morgan, it was all new, and um, they were so cute. They just persevered very respectfully, and they had lots of questions. Um, I imagine their church has has some sort of cafe in the vestibule. So Patrick asked me if, if after the Good Friday service we were going to have hot chocolate, you know, out front. It's like no, we're really cool in the Catholic Church. We actually don't eat anything on Good Friday. <laughs> Real exciting for a seven year old. Um, but it was it's, it's a reminder every year to me that um, again, there's a place for, for fasting, for denying ourselves, which is so good for us and um, so good for our relationship not only with God, but our relationships with each other, our relationships our uh, relationship with ourselves. And um, then there's a time for, for feasting and celebrating and uh, just enjoying all the, the many dimensions, the beauty of, of God's creation. So happy Easter to each of you, to each of your your family members and friends. Um, I wish you a, a blessed, blessed Easter season. Um, oh, I think that's what I started to say. So how cool that for forty days leading up to Easter, you know, we we embrace the spirit of penance, and then for forty days after Easter, uh, we continue to celebrate, celebrate, celebrate until the Ascension, and then for another ten, we celebrate through to pentecost so so in case you're wondering um you know if god's uh looking for more more penance or more celebration um it seems he's offering us a little more celebration we fast fast for 40 and then we feast for for 50 through to the pentecost um, or through to pentecost so um how great is that so god bless you this this easter season as we make our way to the ascension of Jesus back into heaven, and to uh, Pentecost, the descent of the Holy Spirit. When um, when we pray the family rosary together and we're teaching our kids, uh, our, our kids have the prayers down, they're just starting to learn each of the mysteries. Um, when we get to the glorious mysteries or when we pray the glorious mysteries, we, we help them remember it or try to help them remember it by doing this kind of like up, down, up, down, uh, alternating pattern. So we say, you know, the resurrection Jesus came up. He rose up from the dead. And then the second glorious mystery, the ascension, he went up even a little further. So up, up. And then the third glorious mystery, the descent of the Holy Spirit upon Mary and the apostles, the Holy Spirit comes down. So we have up, up, down. The fourth glorious mystery is the assumption. So Mary was taken up into heaven. And then the fifth glorious mystery, the coronation of Mary as queen of heaven, she was elevated maybe we could say um to an even more beautiful and glorious position in heaven so we have up up down up up so the, they've, they've kind of gotten the up up down up up and are still working on the actual ascension assumption you know which one is it so so god bless you and uh, each of your family members and friends this easter season on the second half of today's episode, we're going to read paragraphs 1590 through 1620. We will wrap up with our discussion of holy orders and then begin talking about the last sacrament, the seventh sacrament that the catechism covers, which is holy matrimony. And so um, we'll read the the portion that's covered or the remainder of holy orders that's covered. It's the in brief section. So it just kind of bing, bing, bing goes through um, or kind of encapsulates the, the highlights, the the core key teachings about holy orders. And I realized after talking in the last episode about the practicality of celibacy. So I talked a little bit about how um, celibacy is not one of those teachings of the church that will never change, like the male priesthood. Um, But it has changed. So we have had and even have now married priests. And it might change. You know, we'll, we'll see how how the church goes, how the ways of the world go. We might see more married priests one day. Um, But I talked about how celibacy on a very practical level um, is helpful to the church because, as I mentioned, you know, if Dan were married, we have four children. If he were also, um, you know, hearing confession and saying mass and running the finances of the parish and trying to go out on sick calls to hospitals and people's homes, um, it would be I imagine very, very stressful for him, stressful for us, and so how beautiful um, that that priests um, take the vow of of celibacy and and devote their lives uh, completely to to their parishioners or to the people entrusted to them. I did not talk about, and I want to uh, talk a little bit. Today, and I think this is a great segue then into holy matrimony. I did not talk about um, kind of the theology behind the celibacy of the priesthood. And if we go back to last week's episode, one of the paragraphs that we covered, we read, was paragraph 1579, which talks about how celibacy radiantly proclaims the reign of God. Celibacy radiantly proclaims the reign of God. Those who live a celibate life now on earth. Radiantly proclaim, they, they preach with their very lives, even if they don't say a word, but they live out their celibacy, they proclaim to us, they preach to us the reign of God. And what that's what that's saying to us is that those who live the celibate life now, whether that's priests who take vows celibacy, um, maybe those men and women who enter religious orders, so priests, nuns, monks, sisters um, who, who live what's called virginity for the sake of the kingdom, uh, they, they are living now which what well, we all will live one day in heaven. So cue my students, my, my teenage students for years, asking me, Miss Pine or Mrs. Doherty, is heaven going to be boring? Am I just going to sit on a cloud and play a harp and look at God all day forever? Um, some might hear this teaching or learn this teaching of celibacy and think like, great, I'm going to be married to God in, you know, like a celibate union for all of eternity. That does not sound exciting. Maybe I'll pass. Um, But recall that as we discussed with the Trinity, the heart of God, who God is, is this relationship of love. So Father, Son, Holy Spirit, giving and receiving love, giving and receiving love, giving and receiving love for all of eternity. They have done that. They are doing that now and will continue to do that. And at a moment in history, God creates us so that we too can share in that. We can share in that by being in union with God, so participating in the Trinitarian life by being in union with the Trinity, so through prayer, through the sacraments, um, through contemplation, we can enter into that Trinitarian life. At baptism, uh, we learned that the the Trinitarian life fills our souls, and it's confirmed in the Sacrament of Confirmation so that we are filled with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as they give and receive love. In marriage, husband and wife, um, in a very real way, can give and receive love, give and receive love, give and receive love, such that at at some point, moments, um, you know, for for many people, that love between them becomes a third person. So the, the love between the Father and the Son um, is called the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the love between the Father and the Son. And so in an analogous way, um, in an image of God way, we are made in the image of God. So we show forth a little bit about who God is and what he's like. We too have that capacity to Give and receive love in such a way that we can point to the love between a man and a woman and call that love by a name. Sophia, Declan, Peter, Lucy, Rebecca. I might have mentioned this in a previous episode when I would teach this to, again, my teenage students who are going through the awkwardness of life at a a particularly high pitch. Um, You know, I would say, guys, the love between my mom and dad, Gina and Barry, is standing in front of you and it has a name. Rebecca Pine or Rebecca Doherty, depending on where I, what state of life I was in that year. Um, and they would go, ew. You know, no one wants to think of, of their parents having sex. I would say, guys, the love between your mom and dad, whether or not your mom and dad are together, is sitting before me in a desk. Ew. Um, but it's just really wild if, if, if we take a moment to, to really – you know, think about that, pray with that, contemplate that, that we are made in the image of God in such a way that we, we show forth a little bit of, of who God is, what he does, and we have the capacity to, to act like God, to give and receive love, and thereby, thereby grow in communion uh, with each other and with God. So what does that have to do with celibacy? Marriage on earth um, as we, we are reminded sometimes when we, we hear vows or when we set our own vows, is an earthly institution that, again, images, points to, prepares us for the, the big show in heaven, the grand reality. When when the curtain is pulled back and we see like, oh, that's, that's what God is like. That's what this was all about. Um, so that we... We pray in our vows, or excuse me, we say in our vows, um, you know, in sickness and in health, till death do us part. So at death, um, you know, marriage is no more. Why? It might sound a little sad, um, but because that marriage has been preparing for. This much richer, much deeper, much more profound relationship that, God willing, each of us, each and every one of us will enjoy with God for all of eternity a, a marriage of our, our bodies and souls to the source of life and love and truth and beauty and goodness. And in coming into communion individually with God, we are then brought into communion with each other even more profoundly. So, marriage on earth is a foreshadowing of our relationship with God in heaven. St. Paul says in one of his letters, we see as though in a mirror dimly, but one day, God willing, when we're in heaven, we will know as we are fully known. So we can look around at marriage or think about the, the concept of marriage, think of some, some beautiful marriages we, we might know, we might have experienced, um, you know, firsthand, and think like, wow, what a, what a profound, intimate, awesome relationship marriages. That is like seeing in a mirror dimly, as St. Paul says, compared to what our relationship, our union with God will be in heaven. So at death, marriage passes away, and then we're caught up into that more prof- profound reality that it foreshadows, that it prepares for. Um, I think I mentioned in one of my early episodes this great analogy that that Jeff Keaven's used in a great adventure uh, Bible presentation where he said, I think at the time his daughter Carly was preparing for the NCLEX. She was studying um, for this nursing exam to go on and become a nurse. And he said when she was little, she would study, she would do her homework so that she could get stickers on her tests and her papers. And that was just like, yes, like that That was the goal, to, to prepare and do well so as to get the stickers. Now that she was preparing for her NCLEX, um, she won was not looking for stickers and they don't give stickers on on uh, nursing exams. Um, but she was she was preparing, she was studying and then taking the test so that she could become a nurse so that she could heal and maybe even save the lives of people. She was preparing for something much more profound than you know, a little gold star at the top of her paper. In an analogous way, we, strive to do well in marriage to, quote, unquote, get the stickers, so to enjoy this, this life of communion, to be happy um, and, you know, fulfilled by sharing our lives with, with another, with others, if children come. Um, but it's really so that we can do the thing, really so that we can be like God in this communion of persons, this relationship of love, giving and receiving, giving and receiving, and then be caught up in that union, that marriage with God himself, so marriage, whether we're in a marriage or we look to other marriages, uh, teach us how to love, like God, okay, in a selfless, giving way, uh, receiving the other, giving of ourselves, receiving the other, giving of ourselves, and many times, uh, or oftentimes, in a way that that brings forth new life, whether that's physically having children or welcoming, um, let's say, foster children or adopted children into our home, um, maybe spiritually adopting or being like a mother or father to others, um, nieces, nephews, neighbors, etc. So that we um, train, you could say, St. Paul also uses a lot of imagery um, that has to do with training, you know, being in the stadium, running the race, uh, you know, getting fit for like the end, the end game, so that we can be ready for, like the final marriage, the big marriage to God in heaven. Because we live in a broken world, uh, touched by original sin, many marriages end in divorce. Uh, something because of some things within our control, oftentimes because things are out of our control. Um, but still, the the institution of marriage as Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraph 1603, authored by God himself, points to, it prepares us for the big show, the main event, which is that marriage to God, that union with God, the, the author of marriage, the author of life and love. And so um, celibates, those who take the vow of celibacy or those who who embrace virginity for the sake of the kingdom, begin to live now, that union with marriage to God, and as a result proclaim, as Catechism of the Catholic Church, 1579 says, the reign of God now. So they live now what will all one day, God willing, be doing in heaven. It sounds funny to talk about virginity for the sake of, of the kingdom in a discussion of, of marriage. But again, uh, some men and women choose this, uh, for, ex- for example, or in other words, they don't marry and begin to live now, what we'll all live in heaven. Um, and in so doing, they're not saying, you know, I don't want to be married, so I'll live virginity for the sake of the kingdom, or I don't, you know, we, we don't say, I don't want to live the solitary life, so I'll just get married. But we're, no matter the state of life, we're all made for union with God, uh, ultimately. And those who, who uh, choose celibacy begin to live that now, and with their very lives, point to what we'll all be be living one day. So let's look at a couple paragraphs here in the catechism, paragraph 1619 and then 1620. Virginity for the sake of the kingdom of heaven is an unfolding of baptismal grace, a powerful sign of the supremacy of the bond with Christ and of the ardent expectation of his return, a sign which also recalls that marriage is a reality of this present age which is passing away. And if you're following along in the physical catechism, you'll see that References footnote 116, which at the bottom of the catechism references Gospel of Mark chapter 12, verse 25, and then 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 31. So two passages in scripture that talk about marriage being a reality of this present age, which is passing away. Paragraph 1620 goes on to say, Both the sacrament of matrimony and virginity for the kingdom of God come from the Lord himself. It is he who gives them meaning and grants them the grace which is indispensable for living them out in conformity with his will. Esteem of virginity for the sake of the kingdom and the Christian understanding of marriage are inseparable and they reinforce each other. So again, uh, one does not or should not choose virginity for the sake of the kingdom simply because he or she does not want to get married or like deal with the institution of marriage. And on the flip side, someone should not, um, you know, reject virginity for the sake of the kingdom or the celibate life um, and just embrace marriage so as not to, you know, be lonely or have to deal with with some of the things that come along with with virginity for the sake of the kingdom or celibacy. So the catechism highlights how both states of life point to the end game of union with God. So marriage, again, is like studying for and taking tests to to uh, get the stickers. It's preparing us for then the big test, the Clex. Whereas virginity for the sake of the kingdom, it's like studying for and taking the tests to pass the NCLEX, to become a nurse, to heal and save people now. Striving for the stickers helps us to, we could say, quote unquote, learn the material to one day be the nurse who can heal people and save lives. Some skip the studying for good grades and stickers and go right to becoming the nurse who heals and saves people. So as the catechism says, both states of life, both vocations are beautiful and good and from the Lord, and they reinforce each other. So both marriage and celibacy point to that ultimate union with God. Again, it's, it's those who live the celibate life now, um, now begin to point to what we'll all one day do and in what state we will be. We have, uh, Dan and I have a friend who just went through RCIA and became Catholic. He was uh, formerly, he had some Christian background, um, was an atheist at one point, and then uh, worked his way to, well, by the grace of God, worked his way to theism and then Christianity and eventually Catholicism and uh, just received all of his sacraments at the Easter Vigil. And um, this friend is smart. He's, He's a bright light, and so as he's learning more and more, it's just like, whoa, like, this is what we believe. This is what has been offered to us. And um, he, he's currently dating a beautiful, beautiful, virtuous young woman. Um, but Dan said the other day, he said, I would not be surprised if this friend becomes a priest because now that the blinders are off, he's the kind of guy who just wants it all. Like, God, this is what you're offering. Like, whew, let me let me receive it. Um, and so we're we're each called to different things. God makes us in, as we know, very different ways, different gifts and strengths and weaknesses. Um, you know, he gives us different likes and dislikes. And with all that in the mix, we're then called to, to embrace different things, different roles in life, uh, different vocations, different states. And so uh, celibacy and virginity for the sake of the kingdom Is is not a calling of everyone, Um, but for those for whom it is a calling, what a gift um, for those who embrace it for themselves, and then for all of us again with their lives they point to, to this this beautiful union that God willing we'll all have in heaven one day. I'm just about finished reading a book called With All Her Mind. I highly recommend it. It's put out by the Word on Fire, the Word on Fire Institute. Uh, run by Bishop Barron, and it's a collection of essays by women from all different states of life. So some, um, some are married, some are single, some are sisters, uh, some are some have children, some are academics, some are stay-at-home moms, and um, they each write about the the intellectual life for women. And there's this one essay in particular. The author is Amanda Actman, and she says towards the end of her essay, she says that vocation. Is understood only in retrospect, so we don't we don't see the full picture until the end. Um, but she says that as we say yes along the way to daily prayer, to the sacraments, to the little invitations that God puts before us, um, ultimately we we embrace our our big V vocation. And then she says it's only at the end we look back and see ah, that's what you were preparing me for. That's why you led me step by step to be able to say yes to this. But in the meantime, and she quotes from, I think it's from Acts of the Apostles, she says, we we realize in retrospect that we were eating and drinking with him the whole time. So while each yes, each little V vocation led to maybe the big V vocation, um, we were still able to be in communion with God be filled with that Trinitarian life and love. So we're not, you know, muddling along so that one day we'll see him, but we begin to participate in that life and love in and through uh, marriage, through virginity for the sake of the kingdom, which point to the final union with God, the final yes, which we'll, God willing, enjoy forever. So through each of our vocations, we have the opportunity to be caught up in that Trinitarian life and love and radiantly proclaim to others that they're invited, we're all invited to and made for, that blessed life. As the first paragraph of the Catechism says, that happy life that the Trinity enjoys and has enjoyed for all of eternity. So again, we pray for our priests. We thank God for um, their their choosing to embrace a life of, of celibacy. We praise God for all the men and women who have chosen virginity for the sake of the kingdom. And we thank God for, for all the marriages um, that have, have shown us um, that Trinitarian life, that, that giving and receiving of love um, from which each of us, again, whether our, our parents are together or not, um, from which each of us have, have come forth. So we thank you, Lord, for the gift of our lives, the gift of our faith, And we pray that you'll bless our moms and dads for giving each of those to us so generously. We'll now take a brief break and return on the second side to read paragraphs 1590 through 1620. Thanks for sticking around. You are listening to Catholic Light. Thank you for joining me each week as we read through the Catechism of the Catholic Church and discuss some of its beautiful teachings. and welcome back we'll now read catechism of the catholic church paragraphs 1590 through 1620 in brief st paul said to his disciple timothy i remind you to rekindle the gift of god that is within you through the laying on of my hands and if anyone aspires to the office of bishop he desires a noble task to titus he said this is why i left you in crete that you amend what was defective and appoint presbyters in every town as i directed you The whole church is a priestly people. Through baptism, all the faithful share in the priesthood of Christ. This participation is called the common priesthood of the faithful. Based on this common priesthood and ordered to its service, there exists another participation in the mission of Christ, the ministry conferred by the Sacrament of Holy Orders, where the task is to serve in the name and in the person of Christ the head in the midst of the community. The ministerial priesthood differs, in essence, from the common priesthood of the faithful because it confers a sacred power for the service of the faithful. The ordained ministers exercise their service for the people of God by teaching, divine worship, and pastoral governance. Since the beginning, the ordained ministry has been conferred and exercised in three degrees—that of bishops, that of presbyters, and that of deacons. The ministries conferred by ordination are irreplaceable for the organic structure of the church. Without the bishop, presbyters, and deacons, one cannot speak of the church. The bishop receives the fullness of the Sacrament of Holy Orders, which integrates him into the Episcopal College and makes him the visible head of the particular church entrusted to him. As successors of the apostles and members of the college, the bishops share in the apostolic responsibility and mission of the whole church under the authority of the Pope, successor of St. Peter. Priests are united with the bishops in sacerdotal dignity and at the same time depend on them in the exercise of their pastoral functions. They are called to be the bishop's prudent co-workers. They form around their bishop the presbyterum, which bears responsibility with him for the particular church. They receive from the bishop the charge of a parish community or a determinate ecclesial office. Deacons or ministers ordained for tasks of service of the church. They do not receive the ministerial priesthood, but ordination confers on them important functions in the ministry of the word, divine worship, pastoral governance, and the service of charity, tasks which they must carry out under the pastoral authority of their bishop. The Sacrament of Holy Orders is conferred by the laying on of hands, followed by a solemn prayer of consecration, asking God to grant the ordinand the graces of the Holy Spirit required for his ministry. Ordination imprints an indelible sacramental character. The Church confers the Sacrament of Holy Orders only on baptized men, viri, whose suitability for the exercise of the ministry has been duly recognized. Church authority alone has the responsibility and right to call someone to receive the Sacrament of Holy Orders. In the Latin Church, the Sacrament of Holy Orders for the presbyterate is normally conferred only on candidates who are ready to embrace celibacy freely and who publicly manifest their intention of staying celibate for the love of God's kingdom and the service of men. It is bishops who confer the Sacrament of Holy Orders in the three degrees. Article 7, the Sacrament of Matrimony. The matrimonial covenant, by which a man and a woman establish between themselves a partnership of the whole of life, is by its nature ordered toward the good of the spouses and the procreation and education of offspring. This covenant between baptized persons has been raised by Christ the Lord to the dignity of a sacrament. Marriage and God's plan. Sacred scripture begins with the creation of man and woman in the image and likeness of God and concludes with a vision of the wedding feast of the Lamb. Scripture speaks throughout of marriage and its mystery, its institution and the meaning God has given it, its origin and its end, its various realizations throughout the history of salvation, the difficulties arising from sin, and its renewal in the Lord in the new covenant of Christ and the Church. Marriage in the Order of Creation The intimate community of life and love, which constitutes the married state, has been established by the Creator and endowed by Him with its own proper laws. God himself is the author of marriage. The vocation to marriage is written in the very nature of man and woman as they came from the hand of the Creator. Marriage is not a purely human institution, despite the many variations it may have undergone through the centuries in different cultures, social structures, and spiritual attitudes. These differences should not cause us to forget its common and permanent characteristics. Although the dignity of this institution is not transparent everywhere with the same clarity, Some sense of the greatness of the matrimonial union exists in all cultures. The well-being of the individual person and of both human and Christian society is closely bound up with the healthy state of conjugal and family life. God, who created man out of love, also calls him to love. Thanks, Sophie. You mean before when she brought you Chick-fil-A? No. Yeah, I did it, and I opened the door right now. Is she here now? Oh, got it, so that it's ready. I gotcha. Thanks, baby. I'm almost done reading. You want to sit with me while I read? Or is is Teresa still outside with uh, Deacon? Yeah. Okay. If you want to hang out with them, that's good. Mm -hmm. This might be a little boring for you. Okay. God, who created man out of love, also calls him to love, the fundamental and innate vocation of every human being. For man is created in the image and likeness of God, who is himself love. Since God created him man and woman, their mutual love becomes an image of the absolute and unfailing love with which God loves man. It is good, very good, in the Creator's eyes. And this love, which God blesses, is intended to be fruitful and to be realized in the common work of watching over creation. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it. Holy Scripture affirms that man and woman were created for one another. It is not good that the man should be alone. The woman, flesh of his flesh, his equal, his nearest in all things, is given to him by God as a helpmate. She thus represents God from whom comes our help. Therefore a man leaves his father and his mother and cleaves to his wife, and they become one flesh. The Lord himself shows that this signifies an unbreakable union of their two lives by recalling what the plan of the Creator had been in the beginning. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Marriage under the regime of sin. Every man experiences evil around him and within himself. This experience makes itself felt in the relationships between man and woman. Their union has always been threatened by discord, a spirit of domination, infidelity, jealousy, and conflicts that can escalate into hatred and separation. This disorder can manifest itself more or less acutely and can be more or less overcome according to the circumstances of cultures, eras, and individuals, but it does seem to have a universal character. According to faith, the disorder we notice so painfully does not stem from the nature of man and woman, nor from the nature of the relations, but from sin. As a break with God, the first sin had for its consequence the rupture of the original communion between man and woman. Their relations were distorted by mutual recriminations. Their mutual attraction, the Creator's own gift, changed into a relationship of domination and lust and the beautiful vocation of man and woman to be fruitful, multiply, and subdue the earth was burdened by the pain of childbirth and the toil of work. Nevertheless, the order of creation persists, though seriously disturbed. To heal the wounds of sin, man and woman need the help of the grace that God, in his infinite mercy, never refuses them. Without his help, man and woman cannot achieve the union of their lives for which God created them in the beginning. Marriage under the pedagogy of the law. In his mercy, God has not forsaken sinful man. The punishments consequent upon sin, pain and childbearing, and toil in the sweat of your brow, also embody remedies that limit the damaging effects of sin. After the fall, marriage helps to overcome self-absorption, egoism, pursuit of one's own pleasure, and to open oneself to the other, to mutual aid and to self-giving. Moral conscience concerning the unity and indissolubility of marriage developed under the pedagogy of the old law. In the Old Testament, the polygamy of patriarchs and kings is not yet explicitly rejected. Nevertheless, the law given to Moses aims at protecting the wife from arbitrary domination by the husband, even though according to the Lord's words, it still carries traces of man's hardness of heart, which was the reason Moses permitted men to divorce their wives. Seeing God's covenant with Israel in the image of exclusive and faithful married love, the prophets prepared the chosen people's conscience for a deepened understanding of the unity and indissolubility of marriage. The books of Ruth and Tobit bear moving witness to an elevated sense of marriage and to the fidelity and tenderness of spouses. Tradition has always seen in the Song of Solomon a unique expression of human love, insofar as it is a reflection of God's love, a love strong as death that many waters cannot quench. Marriage in the Lord The nuptial covenant between God and his people Israel had prepared the way for the new and everlasting covenant in which the Son of God, by becoming incarnate and giving his life, has united to himself in a certain way all mankind saved by him, thus preparing for the wedding feast of the Lamb. On the threshold of his public life, Jesus performs his first sign, at his mother's request, during a wedding feast. The church attaches great importance to Jesus' presence at the wedding at Cana. She sees in it the confirmation of the goodness of marriage and the proclamation that thenceforth marriage will be an efficacious sign of Christ's presence. In his preaching, Jesus unequivocally taught the original meaning of the union of man and woman as the Creator willed it from the beginning. Permission given by Moses to divorce one's wife was a concession to the hardness of hearts. The matrimonial union of man and woman is indissoluble. God himself has determined it. What therefore God has joined together, let no man put asunder. This unequivocal insistence on the indissolubility of the marriage bond may have left some perplexed and could seem to be a demand impossible to realize. However, Jesus has not placed on spouses a burden impossible to bear or too heavy, heavier than the law of Moses. By coming to restore the original order of creation disturbed by sin, he himself gives the strength and grace to live marriage in the new dimension of the reign of God. It is by following Christ, renouncing themselves, and taking up their crosses that spouses will be able to receive the original meaning of marriage and to live it with the help of Christ. This grace of Christian marriage is a fruit of Christ's cross, the source of all Christian life. This is what the Apostle Paul makes clear when he says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, adding at once, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one. This is a great mystery, and I mean in reference to Christ and the church. The entire Christian life bears the mark of the spousal love of Christ and the church. Already baptism, the entry into the people of God, is a nuptial mystery. It is, so to speak, the nuptial bath which precedes the wedding feast, the Eucharist. Christian marriage, in its turn, becomes an efficacious sign, the sacrament of the covenant of Christ and the church. Since it signifies and communicates grace, marriage between baptized persons is a true sacrament of the new covenant. Virginity for the sake of the kingdom. Christ is the center of all Christian life. The bond with him takes precedence over all other bonds, familial or social. From the very beginning of the church, there have been men and women who have renounced the great good of marriage to follow the lamb wherever he goes, to be intent on the things of the Lord, to seek to please him, and to go out to meet the bridegroom who is coming. Christ himself has invited certain persons to follow him in this way of life, of which he remains the model. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. He who is able to receive this, let him receive it. Virginity for the sake of the kingdom of heaven is an unfolding of baptismal grace, a powerful sign of the supremacy of the bond with Christ and of the ardent expectation of his return a sign which also recalls that marriage is a reality of this present age which is passing away. Both the sacrament of matrimony and virginity for the kingdom of God come from the Lord himself. It is he who gives them meaning and grants them the grace which is indispensable for living them out in conformity with his will. Esteem of virginity for the sake of the kingdom and the Christian understanding of marriage are inseparable, and they reinforce each other. Whoever denigrates marriage also diminishes the glory of virginity, Whoever praises it makes virginity more admirable and resplendent. What appears good only in comparison with evil would not be truly good. The most excellent good is something even better than what is admitted to be good. And that comes from St. John Chrysostom. This brings us to the end of our reading selection, the end of our episode. Thanks for joining me for another week. Between this week and next week's episode, please connect with me on Instagram at Catholic Light Podcast and on Facebook under Rebecca Doherty. Please pray for me. I'll be praying for you. And in the meantime, God bless you. Thanks for joining me this week on Catholic Light. Be sure to like, subscribe, and share this podcast with your family and your friends. And connect with me through Facebook and Instagram. I'll see you next week. And in the meantime, God bless you.